if you're welcoming me this morning as we've gathered together to worship and uh, for our call to worship this morning, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 will be our call to worship this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are a God who has spoken to us, Lord, and you have spoken to us in a word that abides forever, in a word that can provide comfort and reassurance and uh, uh Salvation and grace, Lord, and assurance of salvation available by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Lord. And we're thankful for your word going out and showing us the straight way, that Jesus is the way, and that salvation is by your grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning we have gathered together to worship you, to offer you our praise and adoration. Lord, we give you praise, our, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your majesty and your glory and your wonderful plan to redeem your sinful people to yourself. And so, Lord, we're thankful for, for your grace and your kindness toward us. We're thankful for your word that brings comfort and encouragement and assurance. And, Lord, we pray that as we worship your spirit would empower us and enable us to offer you worship that is in spirit and in truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, take out your hymnals, as if you would, and turn with me to hymn 456. To worship this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and we will look, last week we looked at the first sending out of intentional missionaries. The church before that had spread the, the gospel about around uh, uh, to, to the Greeks, but that was not an intentional, that was as they were run out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Uh, they scattered and they preached the gospel everywhere they went. The word of Jesus was on their mouths because Jesus was in their hearts and their mouths spoke the overflow of their hearts and they spoke about Jesus everywhere they went. But that was not really an intentional missionary effort. And then last week we looked at the uh, church at Antioch intentionally sending out Barnabas and Saul in response to God's direction. And so uh, they sent out the missionaries and today we will look at their uh, their first encounters and we see 
in this passage, we, we certainly see the sovereignty of God in missions. The sovereignty of God in missions is what we see revealed to us in this particular text. And so Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, we read the word of the Lord, which says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful that you're a God who speaks and a God who has spoken to us perfectly through your word. And Lord, we thank you for your word, which declares to us your sovereignty. And Lord, that you direct and control and you are working all things for your glory and the good of your people who are the called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, we're, we give you praise for your sovereignty and for your great grace and your eternal purpose to redeem every single one of your children to yourself. And, Lord, we give you praise for uh, the fact that you use means and that you seek to involve your people in the drawing and the calling of your people to yourself, Lord, for involving us in, in missions and in evangelism and in discipleship, Lord, and, and asking us to be found faithful in making straight and, and preaching the straight way of the Lord, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Lord. And we ask that you guard us from presenting any obstacles in that straight way and that we would be faithful in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and, and that we would be faithful and that by your grace and your power, you would be pleased to make it fruitful and you would add to our number those that are being saved. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, one of the things that might set Community of Grace apart from other churches in our, uh, around us and other churches even in our denomination is our absolute uh, conviction of the sovereignty of God in salvation. 
that God is completely and absolutely sovereign in the saving of his people, that we are born uh, dead in trespasses and sin and apart from God's grace, making us alive and enabling us to hear the preaching of the gospel and by his Holy Spirit, enabling us to, to believe and to respond, granting us repentance and faith apart from God's sovereign work in our lives. There is no way that we could come to him, no way that we would know him, no way that we would choose to follow him apart from him drawing us to himself. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation from beginning to end. Choosing his people, calling his people, drawing his people to himself, giving his people new life, and preserving his people until the end. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in every aspect of our salvation. And we preach that and we teach that and we believe that's what's taught in the scriptures. And people around, sometimes they say that if you have an absolute belief in the sovereignty of God, then uh, there is no motivation to do missions. They say, you know, if you believe in God's sovereignty and God's going to save, He's going to save whether we do anything or not. They say that that squashes missions. But we look at this passage and we see God's sovereignty and salvation and also God's sovereignty in missions. He uses means to call himself to his people to himself and the means that he chooses to use are his people going out and teaching and speaking the gospel the good news of jesus and we see the sovereignty of god clearly uh, uh in, in missions clearly revealed in this particular passage last week we looked at god's sovereignty and calling out his missionaries barnabas and saul were ministering there at the church in antioch they were doing well they were teaching the people. They had made an impact in the lives of the people that had repented of sins and believed in Jesus Christ. They'd made an impact on their community. The community saw that they were uh, trans that people were being transformed by God's grace, and they even started calling the people at Antioch Christians, Christ people, people who talk about Jesus and people who are looking like Jesus and people who gather together to work like Jesus. They, these people have been so transformed that their neighbors began to call them Christians. Christ people and and so Barnabas and Saul were having a successful mission a successful ministry in Antioch they weren't sitting there saying you know we failed here and we need to go find another church where we can another place where we can minister no they were successful where they were they weren't just sitting around and uh, uh, trusting God to add to their number they were talking about Jesus they were discipling the people they were raising up leaders they were busy in the work of the Lord and they were prospering and flourishing in the church at Antioch. But God sovereignly spoke through the church and through the leaders of the church to say that Barnabas and Saul, I've called them to a mission and you need to send them out. They didn't just have a, uh, an impression that they needed to go, an inward impression. It came through the testimony of the church. And so the church affirmed God's call and the church sent them out. Barnabas and Saul weren't just looking for a bigger church with a better salary or a better compensation package so they left the church at Antioch. No, they were sent by God's sovereignty. They were doing the work of the Lord. They were doing it well. They were prospering. They were flourishing there. But in God's sovereignty, he sent them out. He sent them out through his church. His church sent them out. And so we see God's sovereignty in, in selecting the missionaries, Barnabas and Saul. Uh, but when he sends them out, he doesn't give them a, a map. He doesn't give them step-by-step -step instructions. He doesn't give them the final destination. He doesn't assure them of success. He simply says, send them out to the work to which I've called them. 
And so they go out, and we see God's sovereignty, but we also see that Barnabas and Saul devised a pretty sound strategy. God didn't give them step-by-step instructions. God didn't tell them where to go and when to go and how, how long to stay. God didn't give them a map. God didn't give them an outline of what they were to do. And so instead of just sitting around waiting for God to say, go to this place, they developed a sound strategy. And their strategy was, uh, verse 14, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and they went down to Seleucia, which was a port city not far from Antioch. And there they got on a boat and they sailed to Cyprus. And so they developed a pretty sound strategy. The first place that they went was Cyprus. Well, why Cyprus? Well, maybe it's because Cyprus was where Barnabas had grown up. Barnabas, even though he was Jewish and of the tribe of Levi, had been born and raised on Cyprus. That was his place. That was his hometown. That was his home country. He knew the people. He had contacts there. He knew the culture. He knew the language. He had been born and raised there. And so they were sent out on a mission and absent specific instructions. Why don't we go to a place where we've got contacts, where we know people, where we speak the language, we're familiar with the culture. Let's go to a place where there might be a high probability of success. We've got contacts, we know people, and we can go. And so they developed a sound strategy. Even though they were convinced of God's sovereignty, they still strategized and they planned and they came up with something that they thought might work, that might be successful, that makes sense. Let's go to Cyprus where Barnabas is from. He knows people there. And the second part of their strategy, what did they do? When they arrived in Salamis, which is a port city on the island of Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. All right, so we're going to Cyprus. We're going to a place where we've got contacts. We know the culture. We know the language, or at least Barnabas does. And we're going to preach the word of God. So maybe it makes sense to go to a place where people have gathered together to hear the word of God. The synagogue was a place where the Jewish people would gather on the Sabbath to study the Old Testament scriptures, to pray, to be instructed in the law, be instructed in the Bible, and to worship the living God. And so it makes a lot of sense. If our job is to preach the word of God and to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures, it makes sense to go to a place where people have gathered to be instructed in the word of God. People who already know about God and fear God and have gathered together to worship God well, let's come, let's go to the synagogue, and let's tell the people how Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law that they've been instructed in their whole life. And next week, next week we will look at a message in a different synagogue as they go back to, uh, uh, to Antioch and Pisidia. We'll look at Paul's message, Paul's sermon in one of the synagogues uh, next week. And also, I should have mentioned already, but uh, as we go through and, and, and Paul speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus and fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, we will, uh, we will observe the Lord's Supper to make this truth visible, to set the visible uh, elements of the death and resurrection of Jesus next Sunday in our worship service. We will observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper as we consider that message. And so anyway, the synagogue is the place where the Jews would gather for prayer, for instruction in the Bible, and to worship the Lord. And so it makes sense for Barnabas and Saul 
who have come to preach the word of God to go where people have gathered together to hear the word of God. Right? It's a pretty sound strategy, probably a good plan. And so, uh, and, when, and the way the synagogue worshipped uh, was, it was not exactly like this, like the way we worship uh, at the, the synagogue. Any man who was in attendance, the ruler of the synagogue, could call on him to preach. Just stand up at the Sabbath and call on a man and say, okay, you're preaching. Or any man who came and felt like he had a word from the Lord, he could ask the ruler of the synagogue permission to preach. And Saul, remember Saul was a, a, a trained rabbi, a Pharisee. Saul had gone to school under the most respected rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And so if Saul showed up in your synagogue, who had sat under the greatest rabbi of the day, uh, you saw Saul there, you would probably, when you were the ruler of the synagogue, you said, man, I need to get Saul to preach today. Saul learned from the best. He learned from Gamaliel. Let's let Saul preach. And so Saul, the rabbi, comes to the synagogue and either is called on to preach by the ruler of the synagogue or volunteers to preach. Uh, uh, as he had opportunity, we'll see that next week, he, uh, he volunteers to preach. And so it just makes sense. Look, look at the sound strategy that Barnabas and Saul come up with. We're going to go to a place where Barnabas is aware of the culture and the language and the people, and we're going to go to preach the Word of God in a place where people have assembled to hear the Word of God. Sounds like a very sound strategy, a plan that makes a lot of sense. And they also, they got a team. They got Barnabas, who is gifted in encouragement, Remember, the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. Joseph was his real name, but his nickname was Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The apostles gave him that nickname because of the spiritual gift that he had of being a comforter, an encourager, a helper, an, an admonisher. And so Barnabas has the, has, the, has the gift of encouragement. Paul, we'll see, has the gift of proclamation and, and, and prophecy and exhortation and, and preaching and teaching. And so they've got this team with this gift mix. And then they also have a third member of their team, a helper, a servant, John Mark, a young man, goes with them to, to help and to serve, you know, kind of probably take care of the, the administrative task or the, uh, uh, you know, the sideline things. As Barnabas is encouraging and Paul is preaching, John is helping. And so they've got a team. They go to a place where people have gathered together to hear the word of God. They go to a place where they know the culture and the language and the people. They've got contacts. They go and they've got a sound strategy. They planned and they made some, did a plan that makes sense of them even though they are convinced of the sovereignty of God. They just don't say, well, God is going to save who he wants to save. We're just going to sit in our easy chair and, and wait for God to save his people. No, they come up with a plan and a strategy and they execute that and they do uh, what they what makes sense to them to do and have a good strategy to preach the word of God. And so they go to Cyprus. They go to the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath. And you know what? <laughs> We're not told of any results. We're not told that anybody is converted when they go to the synagogue that day. Nobody responds to the gospel with repentance and faith. We're not told of any results. We're not told of them being hostile and being run out of town, but we're also not told of any conversions happening. They got a good plan, and yet there's no, doesn't appear to be any response. And so they, they go to Salamis, they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, they preach the word, and then they travel all the way across Cyprus. 
They've gone through the whole island of Cyprus from Salamis to Paphos, which is about 100 miles. So they travel 100 miles all the way across the island, and I imagine that they're probably preaching and teaching just like the, the people who left Jerusalem. They talked about Jesus everywhere they went. So as they're making this 100-mile journey across the island of Cyprus, I imagine that they're, that they're teaching and preaching and probably more than one Sabbath, you know, in a 100-mile journey by foot. Uh, if, if there was a Sabbath day during that journey, I'm sure they went to the synagogue in the town wherever they were. And we're not told of any results, no response to the gospel on this first missionary trip so far. They got a good plan. They went to a place where they got contacts. They, they did something that made sense. They're going to preach the word of God. So they went where God's people were gathered together to hear the word preached. And yet we don't see any response. So God is sovereign. They're working a plan. They're being faithful. But as far as we can tell, there's no fruit. But then the second way that we see the sovereignty of God in this passage is that the fruit comes in a surprising place. The fruit comes in a surprising way. So they go to Cyprus, they go to the synagogue, they preach the gospel, they travel 100 miles across the island, and then they run into this, this actually run into an opponent, opposition. And so when they got to the other end of the island on Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulius, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so they went to the synagogue, thinking that they would have a, an audience. No response. They travel 100 miles across the island, and then they are actually invited into the governor's mansion. Sergius Paulus is the proconsul, and he is the governor. Proconsul would be the governor of this particular province, the governor of Cyprus, the one who was ruling in authority of the, over the whole island. And Luke tells us that he was an intelligent man, an open-minded man, and a man with an inquiring mind, a man who wanted to know uh, the truth and wanted to know all kinds of things. And he actually uh, was open-minded, and he had a spiritual advisor on his staff. And so the proconsul, the governor, Sergius Paulius, Paulus, was an open-minded man, a, a man with a teachable spirit, a man who wanted to know... Uh, the truth. And he heard that Barnabas and Saul had come to his town and he wants Barnabas and Saul to come and speak the word to him. And so Barnabas and Saul went to the synagogue thinking they would have a good audience but probably had no, no concept, no idea. Hey, why don't we go to the governor's mansion and preach the word to him? Now they probably felt like that wouldn't be fruitful, but the governor invited them into his mansion to speak to them. Because he was a man with an inquiring mind, an open mind, a teachable spirit who wanted to know the truth. And he had this spiritual advisor on his staff. And Luke actually tells us a whole lot about this guy. Verse 9, he is a sorcerer. Uh, the word is magician. And so he, uh, he either, through demonic power, can manipulate uh, 
events and things and, and through the power of demons may be able to, to, uh, to counterfeit miracles that would draw attention to his teaching. He is a sorcerer, one who, who works in the dark arts and the, and the power of demons, or he could just be a, a fraud, a manipulator, one who creates illusions to create the perception that he is demonstrating supernatural powers. He is a sorcerer, a magician. Luke also tells us that he's a false prophet. So he claims to speak for the Lord. He claims to speak the word of God. He claims to speak direct revelation from God, but he is a false prophet. He claims to speak from God, but his doctrine either comes from demons or from his own imagination. Uh, what he might believe is going to be most profitable to him. He claims to speak from God, but he is a false prophet. He is a liar, a deceiver. He is a false prophet. He is a magician, a false prophet, but he's also a Jew. This man is a Jew. He is Jewish. And so he was raised in the, in, the, in the Jewish faith. He was Jewish ethnicity, raised in the Jewish synagogue, taught the law, the Old Testament scripture. He was a Jew by ethnicity and probably by religion. And yet he had added to Judaism sorcery and uh, his own imagination or the doctrine of demons as a false prophet. So he was Jewish. And, and, uh, and then also notice what his name was, Bar-Jesus. His name was Bar-Jesus. Barnabas means the son of encouragement. Bar-Jesus means the son of Jesus. And so he called himself, he gave himself the name, the son of Jesus. The son of Jehovah is salvation. And so it seems to me that this man kind of, kind of, combined aspects of every single spirituality, every single religion that was out there, the pagans, the heathens, the sorcery, the false prophet, the Jews, the law, maybe even some Christian tenets, some Christian principles, things taught by Jesus. He takes all of these things from all of these traditions and all of these doctrines and all of these religions and piles it into a plate and, and gives Sergius Paulus a little bit of everything. Here's some paganism, here's some sorcery, here's some Judaism, here's some Christian principles. He just throws all that stuff in there in a pot, and that's what he gives Sergius Paulus. A little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of paganism is all in there, and that's what he gives. Sergius Paulus has an open mind, he's open to all these different things, and that's what Alamus brings. All these different teachings, all these different doctrines, all these different traditions, and just throws it in there and say, here's all the things, just pick something that you like. Pick what you like from Judaism, pick what you like from Christianity, pick what you like from paganism and create your own religion, your own spirituality. You just be you, and you take these things that you like, and you discard the things that you don't like. And so that seems to be the, the spiritual advisor of the governor that seems to be his philosophy, just a little bit of everything. And when Paul comes, when Saul comes, Paul calls this man what he is. And so Elamus, you know, the, the governor wants to hear from Barnabas and Saul. He calls them in, and Elamus recognizes this is a threat. 
Elamus is the spiritual advisor to the governor. He probably makes a pretty good living, probably gets paid a little, little bit, a pretty good bit to be the governor's spiritual advisor. He's got a position of power, a prestige, and influence. He's the one that's got the governor's ear and telling him all these religious things, and he's making a good living doing it. And now Barnabas and Saul come in, and they got the truth, and Elamus knows that this is a threat, and so he opposes Barnabas and Saul. But we're told in verse... Nine, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and he calls him out. Now, one thing we got to note right here, verse 9, Saul, we find out here that Saul is also called Paul. Saul is also called Paul, and interesting that the governor's name is Sergius Paulus. And now Saul, we recognize, is called Paul, a very similar name to the name of the governor. And so what are we to think of this? Well, most probably, you know, Paul was uh, raised in Tarsus. He was raised a Roman citizen. And so Paul probably had a Jewish name, Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was named after the first king of Israel from also the, the most famous person from the tribe of Benjamin. He's named after Saul. That's his Jewish name. But he also had a Greek name, a Roman name, as a Roman citizen that sounds a lot like Saul, Paul. And so up to this point, the church has primarily been uh, ministering to Jews or Jewish people. And so Saul was perfectly comfortable with the name Saul, his Jewish name. He used that. That's how the, the Jews in the church knew him. That's how Barnabas and the apostles knew him as Saul. But now that he's embarked on his ministry to the Greeks, his ministry to the Gentiles, he now will use his Greek name, Paul. And that's the way he will be referred to through the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament he will be referred to as Paul. And so this is really a turning point where Saul is no longer called Saul, but now he is called Paul, and he's speaking to this Roman governor, and he, in the power of the Holy Spirit, with the gift of discernment, is actually able to call Elamus exactly what he is. And so Paul is now filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looks at Elamus, and he calls him out. You are full of all deceit. You are a liar. You are a false prophet. You claim to come from God, but you are a deceiver. You are full of deceit and fraud. You are deceiving them in an attempt to enrich yourself. You're not interested in the truth. You're not interested in the word of God. You're not interested in Sergius Paulus' soul. You're not interested in him knowing the truth and governing the truth. You are simply interested in enriching yourself, and you're going to tell him whatever you think might cause him to pay you the most. You are a fraud. You are fraudulent. You are deceiving for the purpose of enriching yourself. And you are not the son of Jesus, you are the son of the devil. You are the son of the devil, you are a liar, and you are just like your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. You are an enemy of righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And so Sergius Paulus, who claims to be a prophet, is actually putting obstacles in the way of the governor and the rest of the people on Cyprus of coming to the Lord. He is perverting, making crooked the straight ways 
of the Lord. And we read Isaiah chapter 40. You know, God was going to send his messenger to make straight his way, to make straight the way of the Lord, to, to raise up the valleys, to take down the mountains, to move every single obstacle for people coming to him by faith. And that prophecy partly fulfilled in John the Baptist, and that prophecy certainly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, and that prophecy fulfilled in Paul going and making a straight way to the, to the way of the Lord. And the, and the way of the Lord is straight. It's simple. It's easy. The way to the Lord. The way with the Lord is difficult and narrow and only a few find it. But there's a way, a sense in which the way to the Lord is straight. Because there's only one way. Jesus is the way. Pretty straightforward. One way on the last night of his earthly life, Jesus looked at his followers and said, I am the way. The way to the Father is straight to Jesus, straight through Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth and to, 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 to be fully human and to be tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And he didn't come to show us the way to the Father. He came to be the way to the Father as he fulfilled all righteousness and then died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against all who come to him in repentance and faith. Being the way to forgiveness, the way to righteousness, the way to the Father. As he took away our sin and our guilt and our shame and he experienced the, the penalty, the punishment of God for the sin of all who believe. Jesus becomes the way by taking away our sin and we come to him in repentance and faith and God raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted and that the way is open. And the way is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and him away. Straightforward, Jesus is the way. There is only one way. There's only one way. Religion is not the way. Good works is not the way. Rituals and ceremonies are not the way. Jesus is the way the way and this false prophet this sorcerer this one uh, who claimed to be the son of Jesus was perverting the way making it crooked putting obstacles in the way making it complicated mixing in paganism and the law and the culture and all the things that the, he wanted to hear he was just really cluttering the path filling it up with obstacles and stumbling blocks and rocks perverting the straight way of the Lord and Paul calls him out on it Paul calls him what he is. He is a deceiver. He is a fraud. He is the son of the devil. He is the enemy of righteousness who is making crooked the straight ways of the Lord, is throwing obstacles in the way of people coming to the Lord. And then Saul, Paul, now called Paul, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, able to discern exactly what is going on and also how God is going to respond. Paul says, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And so that false prophet is struck with temporary blindness. Now you look at this and you, you see almost, you know, our first response to this is, well, that was judgment, that was punishment. But also remember what had happened to Saul at his conversion. When Saul was on the road to Damascus with letters of authorization to arrest members of the way, followers of Jesus, and to bring them bound to Jerusalem, he saw a great light and he was blind. 
He was blinded. But the, the blindness of Saul had great spiritual benefit for Saul. As Saul was not seeing, when his eyes were darkened, his heart and his mind were enlightened. And the blindness, the temporary blindness, had great spiritual benefit for Saul. And when, when he saw, when Ananias came and laid hands on him, he saw. It was temporary, but that time had been a time of spiritual growth, spiritual enrichment for Saul, the time that he could not see. And we can hope and pray that that was what happened to Elamus. Notice what Saul says, what Paul says. He says, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. He does not say to this false prophet and the sorcerer, the hand of the Lord is against you. You would think if this was God's judgment, he would say the, the hand of the Lord is against you. But no, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Maybe this was a gift of God's mercy and grace to convert, to save even the sorcerer, false prophet, falsely claimed son of Jesus. Maybe this was God's mercy and grace on Elamus. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll see Elamus there because this period of physical blindness was a time of spiritual enlightening. And you see God's sovereignty. God enables Saul, Paul to see that man's heart. He gives him the spirit of discernment. And he empowers the authentication of his message. God sovereignly authenticates the message of Paul. And, public, and powerfully discredits the message of Elamus. And so God in his sovereignty and his power shows the authority, the truth of the message that Paul is proclaiming about Jesus, the straight way, that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And God in His power shows that you don't need uh, bits and pieces from all these different world religions and these little things and these little doctrines of men and traditions of men or doctrines of men. You don't need all that stuff. All you need is the straight way. Jesus is the way. And God authenticated that with a display of power. And maybe Elamus was converted. We don't know, but we do know that the proconsul, the governor, believed. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed, had faith, trusted in Jesus. The proconsul believed when he saw what was done, he saw the authority. But notice, he was not astonished at the miracle, but he was astonished at the teaching. No one is ever saved believing in miracles. We're saved believing in the teaching, the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're saved by believing the gospel, the word of the Lord. The miracle gave authentic authentication to that message but the proconsul was saved not believing in the miracle but believing in the teaching of the lord and so we see god's sovereignty 
Yeah, Paul and Silas, you know, they recognized God's sovereignty, but absent step-by-step instructions, they did what made sense to them. They, they developed a strategy, a plan that they thought would be successful. They would go where Barnabas had contacts and new people. They would go to preach the word where people had gathered to hear the word, and there was no results, there was no fruit. But then in a very surprising place, in a very surprising way, and in the face of intense opposition, God showed his sovereignty and called Sergius Paulus to himself. He shows his sovereignty in missions and his sovereignty in the results. God worked in a way that was surprising, that wasn't pre-planned. In a way that was perfectly in accordance with his plan and his purpose. And he, we're only told that one person on the whole island of Cyprus got saved. But that person happened to be the governor who would have influence over the whole island. God's sovereignty working in a way that Barnabas and Saul had no imagination, no plan. But God is sovereign in missions. We're to do what makes sense to us. We're to do what we, uh, what we can do. And, what, and we're, we're to talk to, to, to people who might hear the gospel. We are to talk to anybody who will listen. If somebody asks us to come to their house to tell them the gospel, we're to go and tell them the gospel. We are to trust in God's sovereignty, but we also know God uses means, and we are to tell anybody who will listen about the way of Jesus. And we need to guard ourselves against putting any obstacles in the way, making crooked that straight path. You know, you don't get saved by being a Baptist. You don't get saved by walking down the aisle of church. You don't get saved by any ritual or ceremony. Jesus is the way. Don't clutter that gospel with human tradition or human doctrines or uh, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. And so God is sovereignty. And even though God is sovereign, the people made a plan. But God worked in a surprising way. He showed his sovereignty by working in a way that wasn't pre-planned, in a way that they, that, that, that they probably could not even imagine. But also notice that God works through his spiritual giftedness. God is sovereign in missions, and he is sovereign in missions through the spiritual gift. And Saul, Paul had the gift of discernment. He also had the gift of proclamation. And God's sovereignty in missions sometimes might result in a change in leadership because leadership is based on giftedness, not seniority or longevity. And so the third way we see the sovereignty of God in missions is in the change of leadership look what happens in verse 13 now when paul and his party set sail paul and his party do you notice the change what have we been talking about all through chapter 13 barnabas and saul barnabas and saul the son of encouragement and Saul, the rabbi. But now, one convert on the whole island, a hundred miles island that they've walked from one side to the other, they got one convert, the governor, a man who's going to have influence on the island. So what do they do? They go to the port city and they get on a boat and go back to the mainland. But notice, it's, it's not even Paul and Barnabas it's Paul and his party. And so, leadership and missions is not based upon longevity or seniority, but it's based on spiritual giftedness. 
Up to this point, the gift of encouragement that Barnabas had, that was so important. Encouraging the believers in Jerusalem, encouraging the new believers in Antioch, encouraging them to continue to, to, uh, uh, to, to speak to their neighbors about Jesus and discipling them and, and, and encouraging them to grow in their faith. And even encouraging the apostles to accept this Rabbi Saul who was trying to kill the church but now has been converted. The apostles didn't want anything to do with Saul until Barnabas came and brought him and encouraged them to accept Saul as the apostle to the Gentiles. The church at Antioch was growing and prospering and Barnabas needed to go and encourage Saul to come to the church at Antioch and disciple these people. And so the, the church needed that gift of encouragement, that gift of Barnabas, that gift of, of coming alongside and, and admonishing and encouraging but now that they're on the mission field, that gift of encouragement takes second place. And Saul's gift of, of proclamation and declaration and exhortation and preaching, now that is what is necessary and what is needed. And so Barnabas had been, doing, had been a Christian longer. He'd been doing it longer. He had a relationship with the apostles. He'd been in the church. But leadership and missions because of God's sovereignty is not based on longevity. It's not based on experience. It's based on spiritual giftedness and God's sovereignty. And so what do we have here? We have a change in leadership. They get on the mission field, and because of God's sovereignty, the one that's been gifted with the leadership gifts takes the leadership, and the other takes a supporting role. And, and, and Luke makes it so clear. He's been talking about Saul and Barnabas, and now Paul and his party. Paul's a leader because of God's call, God's sovereignty, and the way that God has gifted Paul for ministry. And so Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. They came to Perga and Pamphylia. And then notice, John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. So a lesson here, don't let defections distract from the mission. We don't know why John left. We know that he was Barnabas' cousin. And so maybe, you know, maybe he was responding better to the ministry of Barnabas. And, and I don't know. Maybe that ministry of encouragement was what, what, what John Mark had. He was Barnabas' cousin. Maybe he wasn't satisfied with the lack of leadership. Maybe the mission trip wasn't what he thought it was going to be. Maybe it was harder. Maybe it was more difficult. We don't know. We don't know why he departed. But that will be very important over in chapter 16. And, and uh, we'll talk more about John Mark's departure. Because that... That's going to cause a, ultimately cause a rift between Paul and Barnabas. But God's sovereign. And if people defect, people turn away, don't let that distract from the mission. God is going to work his purpose and work his plan. And so as we look at this passage, we see the sovereignty of God in missions. God is sovereign, but he uses means. He uses his people. We believe that God will call all of his people to himself and he will grant repentance and faith to all of his people. He will preserve them. He will not lose one single one of his children. He will not lose a single person for whom Jesus died. And he will work that purpose and he will work his plan. He will save his people and he will hold on to his people. But he uses means. He uses his people to speak the gospel to people to whom he will grant repentance and faith. God is sovereign, and so our belief in the sovereignty of God should not squash our missionary focus. It should empower it and enable it and encourage it 
knowing that God's going to work in surprising ways. And God's going to produce his fruit and every single one of his people will come. And so we should be encouraged by that. And, and absent step-by-step instructions, do what you know to do. Make a good plan. Come up with a good strategy. Go with that, but also be ready for God to do something that surprises you, that you did not plan for, that you did not see coming. And trust that God will work. God is sovereign in this use. Develop a plan. Tell people you think might listen. But be open to tell anybody who will listen about the straight way of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, exercising your spiritual gifts in missions and in ministry. So we see God's sovereignty. We need to have confidence in God's sovereignty and to be faithful to speak. Talk to those you think might hear. Talk to those that you think won't hear. Talk to anybody who will listen about the straight way of Jesus. Be careful. Don't put obstacles in the way of believing. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Religion is not the way. Good works is not the way. Rituals and ceremonies are not the way. Traditions of men, not the way. Jesus is the way. Don't put obstacles in the way of people coming to Jesus, but make the path straight. Straight to Jesus. (laughs) Straight to Jesus. And trust God's giftedness, God's sovereignty to, to, to provide gifted leaders. And it might not be the one that the humans think. It's not based on longevity or, uh, or, or uh, uh, experience. It's God's giftedness. And God's, the way God gives people might change. The leadership might change based on the need of the moment as we see with Barnabas and Saul. And then finally, there'll be defections. There'll be those who turn back, those who it's not what we thought or don't respond to the new leadership well. There'll be those that defect. Don't let defections distract you from the mission. God is sovereign even in that and uses that for his glory as we will see later in the book of Acts. God is sovereign. And God will save his people. And uses means the preaching of the gospel. And Paul will write later, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first, why does he go to the synagogue? To the Jew first. And then he goes to the governor's house, who also the Greek. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Let's be faithful in speaking the gospel Everywhere we go, to anyone who will listen, trusting in God's sovereignty. May we be found faithful, and may we cry out to God to make it fruitful. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word and for your sovereignty. Lord, knowing that apart from your miraculous work in our lives and our hearts, we would never, we would never hear, never believe. Never respond with repentance and faith, Lord. That comes from your new birth, the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives. And so, Lord, we stand humbled before your word, recognizing nothing in us, nothing about us, 
caused you to accept us, but just your grace and your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And God, you ordained means someone to come and tell us about the death and the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Lord Jesus. And your spirit opened our hearts and our minds to that truth. We who were blind were made able to see. And Lord, we give you praise for your grace and your kindness and your sovereignty in calling us to yourself. And God, we also give you praise for your plan to use people, gifted people, to tell others. And Lord, we believe that every single person who calls on your name will be saved. But we know they won't call unless they believe. They can't believe unless they hear. And they can't hear unless someone tell them. Lord, may we be faithful in telling them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to you but through him. Lord God, find us faithful. And by your grace and your sovereignty, please make it fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnals and turn with me to him. 400. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. I to welcome you this morning as we've gathered together to worship. And uh, for our call to worship this morning, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 will be our call to worship this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are a God who has spoken to us, Lord, and you have spoken to us in a word that abides forever, in a word that can provide 
comfort and reassurance and uh, uh, salvation and grace, Lord, and assurance of salvation available by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Lord. And we're thankful for your word going out and showing us the straight way, that Jesus is the way, and that salvation is by your grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning we have gathered together to worship you, to offer you our praise and adoration. Lord, we give you praise, our our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your majesty and your glory and your wonderful plan to redeem your sinful people to yourself. And so, Lord, we're thankful for, for your grace and your kindness toward us. We're thankful for your word that brings comfort and encouragement and assurance. And, Lord, we pray that as we worship your spirit would empower us and enable us to offer you worship that is in spirit and in truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, take out your hymnals, as if you would, and turn with me to hymn 456. To worship this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and we will look, last week we looked at the first sending out of intentional missionaries. The church before that had spread the, the gospel about around uh, uh, to, to the Greeks, but that was not an intentional. That was as they were run out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Uh, they scattered and they preached the gospel everywhere they went. The word of Jesus was on their mouths because Jesus was in their hearts and their mouths spoke the overflow of their hearts and they spoke about Jesus everywhere they went, but that was not really an intentional missionary effort. And then last week we looked at the uh, church at Antioch intentionally sending out Barnabas and Saul in response to God's direction. And so uh, they sent out the missionaries and today we will look at their uh, their first encounters. And we see in this passage, we, we certainly see the sovereignty of God in missions. The sovereignty of God in missions is what we see revealed to us in this particular text. And so Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, we read the word of the Lord, which says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful that you're a God who speaks and a God who has spoken to us perfectly through your word. And Lord, we thank you for your word, which declares to us your sovereignty. And Lord, that you direct and control and you are working all things for your glory and the good of your people who are the called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, we're, we give you praise for your sovereignty and for your great grace and your eternal purpose to redeem every single one of your children to yourself. And Lord, we give you praise for uh, the fact that you use means and that you seek to involve your people in the drawing and the calling of your people to yourself, Lord, for involving us in, in missions and in evangelism and in discipleship, Lord, and, and asking us to be found faithful in making straight and, and preaching the straight way of the Lord salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, and we ask that you guard us from presenting any obstacles in that straight way and that we would be faithful in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and, and that we would be faithful and that by your grace and your power, you would be pleased to make it fruitful and you would add to our number those that are being saved. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, one of the things that might set Community of Grace apart from other churches in our, uh, around us and other churches even in our denomination is our absolute uh, conviction of the sovereignty of God in salvation, that God is completely and absolutely sovereign in the saving of His people, that we are born uh, dead in trespasses and sin and apart from God's grace making us alive and enabling us to hear the preaching of the gospel and by his Holy Spirit enabling us to, to believe and to respond, granting us repentance and faith apart from God's sovereign work in our lives. There is no way that we could come to him, no way that we would know him, no way that we would choose to follow him apart from him drawing us to himself. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation from beginning to end. Choosing his people, calling his people, drawing his people to himself, giving his people new life, and preserving his people until the end. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in every aspect of our salvation. And we preach that and we teach that and we believe that's what's taught in the scriptures. And people around, sometimes they say that if you have an absolute belief in the sovereignty of God, then uh, there is no motivation to do missions. They say, you know, if you believe in God's sovereignty and God's going to save, He's going to save whether we do anything or not. They say that that squashes missions. But we look at this passage and we see God's sovereignty and salvation and also God's sovereignty in missions. He uses means to call himself to His people to Himself. And the means that He chooses to use are His people going out and teaching and speaking the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And we see the sovereignty of God clearly uh, uh, in, in missions, clearly revealed in this particular passage. Last week, we looked at God's sovereignty in calling out his missionaries. Barnabas and Saul were ministering there at the church in Antioch. They were doing well. 
They were teaching the people. They had made an impact in the lives of the people that had repented of sins and believed in Jesus Christ. They'd made an impact on their community. The community saw that they were uh, trans- that people were being transformed by God's grace, and they even started calling the people at Antioch Christians, Christ people. People who talk about Jesus and people who are looking like Jesus and people who gather together to work like Jesus. These people have been so transformed that their neighbors began to call them Christians, Christ people. And, And so Barnabas and Saul were having a successful mission, a successful ministry in Antioch. They weren't sitting there saying, you know, we failed here and we need to go find another church where we can, another place where we can minister. No, they were successful where they were. They weren't just sitting around and uh, uh, trusting God to add to their number. They were talking about Jesus. They were discipling the people. They were raising up leaders. They were busy in the work of the Lord and they were prospering and flourishing in the church at Antioch. But God sovereignly spoke through the church and through the leaders of the church to say that Barnabas and Saul, I've called them to a mission and you need to send them out. They didn't just have a, uh, an impression that they needed to go, an inward impression. It came through the testimony of the church. And so the church affirmed God's call and the church sent them out. Barnabas and Saul weren't just looking for a bigger church with a better salary or a better compensation package so they left the church at Antioch. No, they were sent by God's sovereignty. They were doing the work of the Lord. They were doing it well. They were prospering. They were flourishing there. But in God's sovereignty, he sent them out. He sent them out through his church. His church sent them out. And so we see God's sovereignty in in selecting the missionaries, Barnabas and Saul. Uh, But when he sends them out, he doesn't give them a, a map He doesn't give them step-by-step instructions. He doesn't give them the final destination. He doesn't assure them of success. He simply says, send them out to the work to which I've called them. And so they go out, and we see God's sovereignty, but we also see that Barnabas and Saul devised a pretty sound strategy. God didn't give them step-by-step instructions. God didn't tell them, where to go and when to go and how, how long to stay. God didn't give them a map. God didn't give them an outline of what they were to do. And so instead of just sitting around waiting for God to say, go to this place, they developed a sound strategy. And their strategy was, uh, verse 14, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and they went down to Seleucia, which was a port city not far from Antioch. And there they got on a boat and they sailed to Cyprus. And so they developed a pretty sound strategy. The first place that they went was Cyprus. Well, why Cyprus? Well, maybe it's because Cyprus was where Barnabas had grown up. Barnabas, even though he was Jewish and of the tribe of Levi, had been born and raised on Cyprus. That was his place. That was his hometown. That was his home country. He knew the people. He had contacts there. He knew the culture. He knew the language. He had been born and raised there. And so they were sent out on a mission and absent specific instructions. Why don't we go to a place where we've got contacts, where we know people, where we speak the language, we're familiar with the culture. Let's go to a place where there might be a high probability of success. 
We've got contacts, we know people, and we can go. And so they developed a sound strategy. Even though they were convinced of God's sovereignty, they still strategized and they planned and they came up with something that they thought might work, that might be successful, that makes sense. Let's go to Cyprus where Barnabas is from. He knows people there. And the second part of their strategy, what did they do? When they arrived in Salamis, which is a port city on the island of Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. All right, so we're going to Cyprus. We're going to a place where we've got contacts. We know the culture. We know the language, or at least Barnabas does. And we're going to preach the word of God. So maybe it makes sense to go to a place where people have gathered together to hear the word of God. The synagogue was a place where the Jewish people would gather on the Sabbath to study the Old Testament scriptures, to pray, to be instructed in the law, be instructed in the Bible, and to worship the living God. And so it makes a lot of sense. If our job is to preach the word of God and to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures, it makes sense to go to a place where people have gathered to be instructed in the word of God. People who already know about God and fear God and have gathered together to worship God. Well, let's come, let's go to the synagogue, and let's tell the people how Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law that they've been instructed in their whole life. And next week, next week we will look at a message in a different synagogue as they go back to, uh, uh, to Antioch and Pisidia. We'll look at Paul's message, Paul's sermon in one of the synagogues uh, next week and also I should have mentioned already, but uh, as we go through and, and, and Paul speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus and fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, we will, uh, we will observe the Lord's Supper to make this truth visible, to set the visible uh, elements of the death and resurrection of Jesus next Sunday in our worship service. We will observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper as we consider that message. And so anyway, the synagogue is the place where the Jews would gather for prayer, for instruction in the Bible, and to worship the Lord. And so it makes sense for Barnabas and Saul, uh, who have come to preach the word of God, to go where people have gathered together to hear the word of God. Right? It's a pretty sound strategy, probably a good plan. And so, uh, and, when, and the way the synagogue worshipped uh, was, it was not exactly like this, like the way we worship. Uh, at the, the synagogue, any man who was in attendance, the ruler of the synagogue, could call on him to preach. Just stand up at the Sabbath and call on a man and say, okay, you're preaching or any man who came and felt like he had a word from the Lord, he could ask the ruler of the synagogue permission to preach. And Saul, remember Saul was a, a, a trained rabbi, a Pharisee. Saul had gone to school under the most respected rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And so if Saul showed up in your synagogue, who had sat under the greatest rabbi of the day, uh, you saw Saul there, you would probably, when you were the ruler of the synagogue, you said, man, I need to get Saul to preach today. Saul learned from the best. He learned from Gamaliel. Let's let Saul preach. And so Saul, the rabbi, comes to the synagogue and either is called on to preach by the ruler of the synagogue or volunteers to preach. Uh, uh, as he had opportunity, we'll see that next week, he, uh, he volunteers to preach. And so it just makes sense. Look, look at the sound strategy that Barnabas and Saul come up with. We're going to go to a place where Barnabas is aware of the culture and the language and the people, and we're going to go to preach the Word of God in a place where people have assembled to hear the Word of God. Sounds like a 
very sound strategy, a plan that makes a lot of sense. And they also, they got a team. They got Barnabas, who is gifted in encouragement. Remember the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, Joseph was his real name, but his nickname was Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The apostles gave him that nickname because of the spiritual gift that he had of being a comforter, an encourager, a helper, an, an admonisher. And so Barnabas has the, has, the, has the gift of encouragement. Paul, we'll see, has the gift of proclamation and, and, and prophecy and exhortation and, and preaching and teaching. And so they've got this team with this gift mix. And then they also have a third member of their team, a helper, a servant, John Mark, a young man, goes with them to, to help and to serve, you know, to kind of probably take care of the, the administrative task or the, uh, uh, you know, the sideline things. As Barnabas is encouraging and Paul is preaching, John is helping. And so they've got a team. They go to a place where people have gathered together to hear the word of God. They go to a place where they know the culture and the language and the people. They've got contacts. They go and they've got a sound strategy. They planned and they made some, did a plan that makes sense of them even though they are convinced of the sovereignty of God. They just don't say, well, God is going to save who he wants to save. We're just going to sit in our easy chair and, and wait for God to save his people. No, they come up with a plan and a strategy and they execute that and they do uh, what they what makes sense to them to do and have a good strategy to preach the word of God. And so they go to Cyprus. They go to the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath. And you know what? We're not told of any results. We're not told that anybody is converted when they go to the synagogue that day. Nobody responds to the gospel with repentance and faith. We're not told of any results. We're not told of them being hostile and being run out of town, but we're also not told of any conversions happening. They got a good plan, and yet there's no, doesn't appear to be any response. And so they, they go to Salamis, they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, they preach the word, and then they travel all the way across Cyprus. They've gone through the whole island of Cyprus from Salamis to Paphos, which is about 100 miles. So they travel 100 miles all the way across the island, and I imagine that they're probably preaching and teaching just like the, the people who left Jerusalem. They talked about Jesus everywhere they went. So as they're making this 100-mile journey across the island of Cyprus, I imagine that they're, that they're teaching and preaching and probably more than one Sabbath, you know, in a 100-mile journey by foot. Uh, if, if there was a Sabbath day during that journey, I'm sure they went to the synagogue in the town wherever they were. And we're not told of any results, no response to the gospel on this first missionary trip so far. They got a good plan. They went to a place where they got contacts. They, they did something that made sense. They're going to preach the word of God. So they went where God's people were gathered together to hear the word preached. And yet we don't see any response. So God is sovereign. They're working a plan they're being faithful, but as far as we can tell, there's no fruit. But then the second way that we see the sovereignty of God in this passage is that the fruit comes in a surprising place. The fruit comes in a surprising way. So they go to Cyprus, they go to the synagogue, they preach the gospel, they travel 100 miles across the island, and then they run into this this actually run into an opponent, opposition. 
And so when they got to the other end of the island on Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulius, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so they went to the synagogue, thinking that they would have a, an audience. No response. They travel 100 miles across the island, and then they are actually invited into the governor's mansion. Sergius Paulus is the proconsul, and he is the governor. Proconsul would be the governor of this particular province, the governor of Cyprus, the one who was ruling in authority of the, over the whole island. And Luke tells us that he was an intelligent man, an open-minded man, and a man with an inquiring mind, a man who wanted to know uh, the truth and wanted to know all kinds of things. And he actually uh, was open-minded, and he had a spiritual advisor on his staff. And so the proconsul, the governor, Sergius Paulius, Paulus, was an open-minded man, a, a man with a teachable spirit, a man who wanted to know... Uh, the truth. And he heard that Barnabas and Saul had come to his town and he wants Barnabas and Saul to come and speak the word to him. And so Barnabas and Saul went to the synagogue thinking they would have a good audience but probably had no, no concept, no idea. Hey, why don't we go to the governor's mansion and preach the word to him? Now they probably felt like that wouldn't be fruitful but the governor invited them into his mansion to speak to them. Because he was a man with an inquiring mind, an open mind, a teachable spirit who wanted to know the truth. And he had this spiritual advisor on his staff. And Luke actually tells us a whole lot about this guy. Verse 9, he is a sorcerer. Uh, the word is magician. And so he, uh, he either, through demonic power, can manipulate... Uh, events and things and and through the power of demons may be able to to uh, to counterfeit miracles that would draw attention to his teaching he is a sorcerer one who who works in the dark arts and the and the power of demons or he could just be a a fraud a manipulator one who creates illusions to create the perception that he is demonstrating supernatural powers he is a sorcerer a magician Luke also tells us that he's a false prophet. So he claims to speak for the Lord. He claims to speak the word of God. He claims to speak direct revelation from God, but he is a false prophet. He claims to speak from God, but his doctrine either comes from demons or from his own imagination. Uh, what he might believe is going to be most profitable to him. He claims to speak from God, but he is a false prophet he is a liar a deceiver he is a false prophet he is a magician a false prophet but he's also a jew this man is a jew he is jewish and so he was raised in the in the in the jewish faith he was jewish ethnicity raised in the jewish synagogue taught the law the old testament scripture he was a jew by ethnicity and probably by religion and yet he had added to Judaism sorcery and 
his own imagination or the doctrine of demons as a false prophet. So he was Jewish. And, and, uh, and then also notice what his name was. Bar Jesus. His name was Bar Jesus. Barnabas means the son of encouragement. Bar Jesus means the son of Jesus. And so he called himself, he gave himself the name, the son of Jesus. The son of Jehovah is salvation. And so it seems to me that this man kind of combined aspects of every single spirituality, every single religion that was out there, the pagans, the heathens, the sorcery, the false prophet, the Jews, the law, maybe even some Christian tenets, some Christian principles, things taught by Jesus. He takes all of these things from all of these traditions and all of these doctrines and all of these religions and piles it into a plate and, and gives Sergius Paulus a little bit of everything. Here's some paganism, here's some sorcery, here's some Judaism, here's some Christian principles. He just throws all that stuff in there in a pot, and that's what he gives Sergius Paulus. A little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of paganism is all in there, and that's what he gives. Sergius Paulus has an open mind, he's open to all these different things, and that's what Alamus brings. All these different teachings, all these different doctrines, all these different traditions, and just throws it in there and say, here's all the things, just pick something that you like. Pick what you like from Judaism, pick what you like from Christianity, pick what you like from paganism and create your own religion, your own spirituality. You just be you, and you take these things that you like, and you discard the things that you don't like. And so that seems to be the, the spiritual advisor of the governor that seems to be his philosophy, just a little bit of everything. And when Paul comes, when Saul comes, Paul calls this man what he is. And so Elamus, you know, the, the governor wants to hear from Barnabas and Saul. He calls them in, and Elamus recognizes this is a threat. Elamus is the spiritual advisor to the governor. He probably makes a pretty good living, probably gets paid a little, little bit, a pretty good bit to be the governor's spiritual advisor. He's got a position of power, a prestige, and influence. He's the one that's got the governor's ear and telling him all these religious things, and he's making a good living doing it. And now Barnabas and Saul come in, and they got the truth, and Elamus knows that this is a threat, and so he opposes Barnabas and Saul. But we're told in verse... Nine, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and he calls him out. Now, one thing we got to note right here, verse 9, Saul, we find out here that Saul is also called Paul. Saul is also called Paul, and interesting that the governor's name is Sergius Paulus. And now Saul, we recognize, is called Paul, a very similar name to the name of the governor. And so what are we to think of this? Well, most probably, you know, Paul was uh, raised in Tarsus. He was raised a Roman citizen. And so Paul probably had a Jewish name, Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was named after the first king of Israel from also the, the most famous person from the tribe of Benjamin. He's named after Saul. That's his Jewish name. But he also had a Greek name, a Roman name, as a Roman citizen that sounds a lot like Saul, Paul. And so up to this point, 
The church has primarily been uh, ministering to Jews or Jewish people. And so Saul was perfectly comfortable with the name Saul, his Jewish name. He used that. That's how the, the Jews in the church knew him. That's how Barnabas and the apostles knew him as Saul. But now that he's embarked on his ministry to the Greeks, his ministry to the Gentiles, he now will use his Greek name, Paul. And that's the way he will be referred to through the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. He will be referred to as Paul. And so this is really a turning point where Saul is no longer called Saul, but now he is called Paul. And he's speaking to this Roman governor. And he, in the power of the Holy Spirit, with the gift of discernment, is actually able to call Elamus exactly what he is. And so Paul is now filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looks at Elamus and he calls him out. You are full of all deceit. You are a liar. You are a false prophet. You claim to come from God, but you are a deceiver. You are full of deceit and fraud. You are deceiving them in an attempt to enrich yourself. You're not interested in the truth. You're not interested in the word of God. You're not interested in Sergius Paulus' soul. You're not interested in him knowing the truth and governing the truth. You are simply interested in enriching yourself, and you're going to tell him whatever you think might cause him to pay you the most. You are a fraud. You are fraudulent. You are deceiving for the purpose of enriching yourself. And you are not the son of Jesus, you are the son of the devil. You are the son of the devil, you are a liar, and you are just like your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. You are an enemy of righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And so Sergius Paulus, who claims to be a prophet, is actually putting obstacles in the way of the governor and the rest of the people on Cyprus of coming to the Lord. He is perverting, making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. And we read Isaiah chapter 40. You know, God was going to send his messenger to make straight his way, to make straight the way of the Lord, to, to raise up the valleys, to take down the mountains, to move every single obstacle for people coming to him by faith. And that prophecy partly fulfilled in John the Baptist, and that prophecy certainly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, and that prophecy fulfilled in Paul going and making a straight way to the, to the way of the Lord. And, and the way of the Lord is straight. It's simple. It's easy. The way to the Lord, the way with the Lord is difficult and narrow, and only a few find it. But there's a way, a sense in which the way to the Lord is straight. Because there's only one way. Jesus is the way. Pretty straightforward. One way, on the last night of his earthly life, Jesus looked at his followers and said, I am the way. The way to the Father is straight to Jesus. Straight through Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth and to, 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 to be fully human and to be tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. 
And he didn't come to show us the way to the Father. He came to be the way to the Father as he fulfilled all righteousness and then died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against all who come to him in repentance and faith. Being the way to forgiveness, the way to righteousness, the way to the Father. As he took away our sin and our guilt and our shame and he experienced the, the penalty, the punishment of God for the sin of all who believe. Jesus becomes the way by taking away our sin and we come to him in repentance and faith and God raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted and that the way is open. And the way is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and him away. Straightforward, Jesus is the way. There is only one way. There's only one way. Religion is not the way. Good works is not the way. Rituals and ceremonies are not the way. Jesus is the way. The way. And this false prophet, this sorcerer, this one uh, who claimed to be the son of Jesus was perverting the way, making it crooked, putting obstacles in the way, making it complicated, mixing in paganism and the law and the culture and all the things that the, he wanted to hear. He was just really cluttering the path, filling it up with obstacles and stumbling blocks and rocks, perverting the straight way of the Lord, and Paul calls him out on it. Paul calls him what he is. He is a deceiver. He is a fraud. He is the son of the devil. He is the enemy of righteousness who is making crooked the straight ways of the Lord, is throwing obstacles in the way of people coming to the Lord. And then Saul, Paul, now called Paul, Paul, Filled with the Holy Spirit, able to discern exactly what is going on and also how God is going to respond. Paul says, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And so that false prophet is struck with temporary blindness. Now you look at this and you, you see almost, you know, our first response to this is, well, that was judgment, that was punishment. But also remember what had happened to Saul at his conversion. When Saul was on the road to Damascus with letters of authorization to arrest members of the way, followers of Jesus, and to bring them bound to Jerusalem, he saw a great light and he was blind. He was blinded. But the, the blindness of Saul had great spiritual benefit for Saul. As Saul was not seeing when his eyes were darkened, his heart and his mind were enlightened. And the blindness, the temporary blindness, had great spiritual benefit for Saul. And when, when he saw, when Ananias came and laid hands on him, he saw. It was temporary, but that time had been a time of spiritual growth, spiritual enrichment for Saul. The time that he could not see and we can hope and pray that that was what happened to Elamus notice what Saul says what Paul says he says indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you he does not say to this false prophet of the sorcerer the hand of the Lord is against you you would think if this was God's judgment he would say the, the hand of the Lord is against you but no the hand of the Lord is upon you maybe this was a gift of God's mercy and grace to convert to save even the sorcerer false prophet falsely claimed son of Jesus Maybe this was God's mercy and grace on Elamus. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll see Elamus there because this period of physical 
Blindness was a time of spiritual enlightening. And you see God's sovereignty. God enables Paul to see that man's heart. He gives him the spirit of discernment. And he empowers the authentication of his message. God sovereignly authenticates the message of Paul. And and powerfully discredits the message of Elamus. And so God in his sovereignty and his power shows the authority, the truth of the message that Paul is proclaiming about Jesus, the straight way, that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And God in his power shows that you don't need uh, bits and pieces from all these different world religions and these little things and these little doctrines of men and traditions of men or doctrines of men. You don't need all that stuff. All you need is the straight way. Jesus is the way. And God authenticated that with a display of power. And maybe Elamus was converted. We don't know, but we do know that the proconsul, the governor, believed. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed, had faith, trusted in Jesus. The proconsul believed when he saw what was done, he saw the authority. But notice, he was not astonished at the miracle, but he was astonished at the teaching. No one is ever saved believing in miracles. We're saved believing in the teaching, the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're saved by believing the gospel, the word of the Lord. The miracle gave authentic authentication to that message but the proconsul was saved not believing in the miracle but believing in the teaching of the lord and so we see god's sovereignty yeah paul and silas you know they recognize god's sovereignty but absent step-by-step instructions they did what made sense to them they they developed a strategy a plan that they thought would be successful they would go where barnabas had contacts and new people they would go to preach the word where people had gathered to hear the word and there was no results there was no fruit but then in a very surprising place in a very surprising way and in the face of intense opposition God showed his sovereignty and called Sergius Paulus to himself he shows his sovereignty in missions and his sovereignty in the results God worked in a way that was surprising that wasn't pre-planned in a way that was perfectly in accordance with his plan and his purpose. And he, we're only told that one person on the whole island of Cyprus got saved. But that person happened to be the governor who would have influence over the whole island. God's sovereignty. Working in a way that Barnabas and Saul had no imagine, imagination, no plan. But God is sovereign in missions. We're to do what makes sense to us. We're to do what we... Uh, what we can do, and what, and we're we're to talk to, to to people who might hear the gospel. We are to talk to anybody who will listen. If somebody asks us to come to their house to tell them the gospel, we're to go and tell them the gospel. We are to trust in God's sovereignty, but we also know God uses means, and we are to tell anybody who will listen about the way of Jesus. And we need to guard ourselves against putting any obstacles in the way, making crooked that straight path. 
You know, you don't get saved by being a Baptist. You don't get saved by walking down the aisle of church. You don't get saved by any ritual or ceremony. Jesus is the way. Don't clutter that gospel with human tradition or human doctrines. Or uh, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. And so God is sovereignty. And even though God is sovereign, the people made a plan. But God worked in a surprising way. He showed his sovereignty by working in a way that wasn't pre-planned, in a way that they, that, that, that they probably could not even imagine. But also notice that God works through spiritual giftedness. God is sovereign in missions, and he is sovereign in missions through the spiritual giftedness. Saul, Paul had the gift of discernment. He also had the gift of proclamation. And God's sovereignty in missions sometimes might result in a change in leadership because leadership is based on giftedness, not seniority or longevity. And so the third way we see the sovereignty of God in missions is in the change of leadership. Look what happens in verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail. Paul and his party. Do you notice the change? What have we been talking about all through chapter 13? Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. The son of encouragement and Saul the rabbi. But now, one convert on the whole island 100 miles island that they've walked from one side to the other. They got one convert, the governor, a man who's going to have influence on the island. So what do they do? They go to the port city and they get on a boat and go back to the mainland. But notice, it's, it's not even Paul and Barnabas. It's Paul and his party. And so leadership and missions is not based upon longevity or seniority but it's based on spiritual giftedness. Up to this point, the gift of encouragement that Barnabas had, that was so important. Encouraging the believers in Jerusalem, encouraging the new believers in Antioch, encouraging them to continue to, to, uh, uh, to, to speak to their neighbors about Jesus and discipling them and, and, and encouraging them to grow in their faith. And even encouraging the apostles to accept this Rabbi Saul who was trying to kill the church, but now has been converted. The apostles didn't want anything to do with Saul until Barnabas came and brought him and encouraged them to accept Saul as the apostle to the Gentiles. The church at Antioch was growing and prospering, and Barnabas needed to go and encourage Saul to come to the church at Antioch and disciple these people. And so the, the church needed that gift of encouragement, that gift of Barnabas, that gift of, of coming alongside and, and admonishing and encouraging but now that they're on the mission field, that gift of encouragement takes second place. And Saul's gift of, of proclamation and declaration and exhortation and preaching, now that is what is necessary and what is needed. And so Barnabas had been, doing, had been a Christian longer. He'd been doing it longer. He had a relationship with the apostles. He'd been in the church. But leadership and missions, because of God's sovereignty, is not based on longevity. It's not based on experience. It's based on spiritual giftedness and God's sovereignty. And so what do we have here? We have a change in leadership. 
They get on the mission field, and because of God's sovereignty, the one that's been gifted with the leadership gifts takes the leadership, and the other takes a supporting role. And, and, and Luke makes it so clear. He's been talking about Saul and Barnabas, and now Paul and his party. Paul's a leader because of God's call, God's sovereignty, and the way that God has gifted Paul for ministry. And so Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. They came to Perga and Pamphylia. And then notice, John departed from them and to return to Jerusalem. So a lesson here, don't let defections distract from the mission. We don't know why John left. We know that he was Barnabas' cousin. And so maybe, you know, maybe he was responding better to the ministry of Barnabas. And, and I don't know. Maybe that ministry of encouragement was what, what, what John Mark had. He was Barnabas' cousin. Maybe he wasn't satisfied with the lack of leadership. Maybe the mission trip wasn't what he thought it was going to be. Maybe it was harder. Maybe it was more difficult. We don't know. We don't know why he departed. But that will be very important over in chapter 16. And, and uh, we'll talk more about John Mark's departure. Because that, that's going to cause a, ultimately cause a rift between Paul and Barnabas. But God's sovereign. And if people defect... People turn away. Don't let that distract from the mission. God is going to work his purpose and work his plan. And so as we look at this passage, we see the sovereignty of God in missions. God is sovereign, but he uses means. He uses his people. We believe that God will call all of his people to himself. And he will grant repentance and faith to all of his people. He will preserve them. He will not lose one single one of his children. He will not lose a single person for whom Jesus died. And he will work that purpose and he will work his plan. He will save his people and he will hold on to his people. But he uses means. He uses his people to speak the gospel to people to whom he will grant repentance and faith. God is sovereign. And so our belief in the sovereignty of God should not squash our missionary focus. It should empower it and enable it and encourage it, knowing that God's going to work in surprising ways. And God's going to produce his fruit, and every single one of his people will come. And so we should be encouraged by that. And, and absent step-by-step instructions, do what you know to do. Make a good plan. Come up with a good strategy. Go with that, but also... Be ready for God to do something that surprises you, that you did not plan for, that you did not see coming. And trust that God will work. God is sovereign in missions. Develop a plan. Tell people you think might listen. But be open to tell anybody who will listen about the straight way of God and the power of the Holy Spirit Exercising your spiritual gifts in missions and in ministry. So we see God's sovereignty. We need to have confidence in God's sovereignty. And to be faithful. To speak. Talk to those you think might hear. Talk to those that you think won't hear. Talk to anybody who will listen about the straight way of Jesus. Be careful. Don't put obstacles in the way of believing. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Religion is not the way. Good works is not the way. Rituals and ceremonies are not the way. Traditions of men, not the way. Jesus is the way. 
Don't put obstacles in the way of people coming to Jesus to make the path straight. Straight to Jesus. <laughs> straight to Jesus. And trust God's giftedness, God's sovereignty to, to, to provide gifted leaders. And it might not be the one that the humans think. It's not based on longevity or uh, or, or uh, uh, experiences God's giftedness. And God's the way God gives people might change. The leadership might change based on the need of the moment as we see with Barnabas and Saul. And then finally, there'll be defections. There'll be those who turn back. Those who it's not what we thought or don't respond to the new leadership well. There'll be those that defect. Don't let defections distract you from the mission. God is sovereign even in that and uses that for his glory as we will see later in the book of Acts. God is sovereign. And God will save his people. And use his means the preaching of the gospel. And Paul will write later, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first. Why does he go to the synagogue? To the Jew first. And then he goes to the governor's house to also the Greek. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Let's be faithful in speaking the gospel everywhere we go to anyone who will listen. Trusting in God's sovereignty. May we be found faithful and may we cry out to God to make it fruitful. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word and for your sovereignty. Lord, knowing that apart from your miraculous work in our lives and our hearts, we would never, we would never hear, never believe, never respond with repentance and faith. Lord, that comes from your new birth, the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives. And so, Lord, we stand humbled before your word, recognizing nothing in us, nothing about us caused you to accept us, but just your grace and your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that, God, you ordained means someone to come and tell us about the death and the, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And your spirit opened our hearts and our minds to that truth. We who were blind were made able to see. And Lord, we give you praise for your grace and your kindness and your sovereignty in calling us to yourself. And God, we also give you praise for your plan to use people, gifted people, to tell others. And Lord, we believe that every single person who calls on your name will be saved. But we know they won't call unless they believe. They can't believe unless they hear. And they can't hear unless someone tell them. Lord, may we be faithful in telling them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to you but through him.
Lord God, find us faithful. And by your grace and your sovereignty, please make it fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnals and turn with me to him. 400. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.